Benny, would you come here for a minute? Benny, I can't even believe is standing upright. He is on week three of filming this movie that when uh, I was talking about you yesterday, that this is a time when Benny and Mary Lou could be coasting after, you know, this is a guy that's got an organization that's 10,000 clubs around the United States right now that are leading young men and women in discipleship in high school campuses here. Around the world, it's even larger. And so Benny decides, hey, you know what would be a great idea now would be to... Uh, to make a movie and <laughs> to tell the story of, uh, of Rachel Scott. And I think that it's, uh, I can't think of a better guy for God to have entrusted it to. Tell us what's happening this week, uh, what we can do to help you this week, and, uh, and what you need even personally. Well, we have a, in our organization, we have this rule that we go about. The rule is that someone has to do the work and someone has to take the credit for it. So, so I tell all That's of our mean. people in our organization, oh, if you all will do the work, I will take the credit for it. I recognize me so, in that metaphor, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't work very hard. I, I, I enjoy what I do, and, but there are some amazing people. Uh, Beth is here again this morning, Rachel's mom. Hey, yeah, why don't you stand up so they can see you? She and shared Macy, some powerful words. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And if, and if you know who's amazing, Macy, you stand up too. This is Rachel in our movie. Yeah. And there's, there's like about 160 scenes in this movie, and she's in 130 of them. So, um, so you want to know somebody who's book. working 12 to 20 hours every day, it's her. So we're, please uh, continue to pray for us, and uh, we just want to be this movie to be led by the Holy Spirit. There's... Uh, uh, great things to report. Yesterday, I think we were at a, shooting a scene, and most of y'all saw how beautiful the sky was yesterday, totally clear. And there, there's a scene outside where you have to be looking up at the sun, and Macy's going, oh, gosh, I can't, I can't do this scene. I'm telling you guys, you ready? Clouds formed right over the set. We shot the scene. They went away. That, I mean, we've got cast and crew that don't even know Jesus. I mean, they're from all over the place, and they were sitting there going, what just happened? <laughs> so the Lord is smiling on this project. Wow. So we've had some incredible things like that happen. We've got some great folks here at Conduit that have provided vehicles and provided homes and provided food, and, and of course, all of you, the water uh, and, and all the snacks and everything have just been amazing. And I know this church has prayed for this movie and continue to do that. We have uh, probably seven to ten days left as, as the shooting takes place. We're about three-quarters of the way done. Um, and uh, let me tell you, the, the devil hates the name of Jesus. Did you know that? You can talk about God all you want to. Because, I mean, when you talk about God, some people believe the trees are God and some people believe everything's God. God is not the only... God is not the only name under heaven whereby a man can be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. And that's why every knee will bow and every tongue confess at the name of Jesus. And so when you're doing a movie, and the title of the movie, I am not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus, you can only imagine <laughs> what the devil and his forces are, are doing. So we, um, there have been some crazy things going on like that that we just sense the uh, presence of the enemy, but the, he who is in us is greater. So yeah. we do not, we recognize it, we prepare ourselves for it, but we do not walk in fear. We know that uh, what God is going to accomplish through this story. Uh, Beth has, uh, I mean, this story has been told to millions of people already. We get, the, the comments she gets everywhere we go about how Rachel's story has touched people's lives and, um, you know, Rachel wrote that she wanted, and even as a little girl, wrote that she wanted her life to touch millions. These are the hands of Rachel Joy Scott, and someday will touch millions of people's hearts. Hmm. And that's what we hope this movie will continue to do. Thank you, church, for praying for us. Thank you for stepping up and helping us with all the resources, and so many of you have volunteered and given so freely. So, um, so what do we need this week? What do you need? Oh, thank you. One more thing. Yeah. Um, and go for the clothes, man. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> How many of you ever been in a movie? How would you like to? <laughs> would you like to be? I have been. To yes. <laughs> Tomorrow morning at eight thirty at our Savior Lutheran Church. It's it's off of I I sixty five North. You take uh, Old Hickory 
and then go over to Highway 31 and go north, right on 31. And it's about the third, or, it's a third church, third or fourth church on the right down a couple of miles. We're going to be filming from 8.30 till noon. We're going to be filming Rachel's funeral tomorrow. Now this, the, her funeral, before anybody really knew who Rachel was, they, they had this incredible tragedy at Columbine. CNN chose Rachel's funeral to cover. Historically, it's the, the most, the highest viewing audience CNN has ever had on any event still. Her, her funeral was literally the number one viewing audience they've ever had. So if we're going to reenact that, we need a big viewing. <laughs> uh, but that, obviously it was viewed all over the world. But we, that is a set. Uh, so we're inviting people to come. And unfortunately, you need to dress like you're going to a funeral because you are. It is a movie set. Uh, we started about 8.30. If you can be there at 8.30, and it should be end by noon. But we would love to have the church full for this setting and be on the movie set and be a part of the movie. Right. You've already been an incredible part of it, but we'd love to have you, if you feel led to do that, or if you can, and that's young and old alike, come and be a part of that. Uh, yeah. Our Savior Lutheran Church uh, on uh, 31, just north of uh, Old Hickory Boulevard, and uh, we'd love for you to come yeah. be a part of it. And we'll, to, uh, for those of you that won't remember, we're going to post in the private Facebook group. So, and if you're not a part of that already, search for Conduit Church on uh, Facebook, and there's a private group, not the public uh, page, but the private group, and click add, and we'll make sure you get added to that so you get information. Okay. Thank you. On that as well. So, so you. thank you. Thank for you, man. That support and prayers have been amazing. Thank Love you. it. Every instance of uh, an image of Jesus in, this, in the scriptures, especially uh, New Testament image of Jesus, it always shows him seated at the right hand of the Father. There's only one that I'm aware of, one instance where Jesus stood. And it was in Acts chapter 6 when Stephen looked up to, to the Father as he was being made a martyr. And it says that Jesus stood and I still believe that that's him giving a one-man standing ovation. And Beth, I just believe that. I'm not trying to give you a meaningless platitude, but that was a standing ovation for Rachel that day from the only one that matters, which is Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father on that day. And someday when we are all gathered around his throne, it says that we'll say righteous and true are your judgments. And it won't be because he's forcing us or because we're robots, but it'll be, we'll be genuinely blown away. By him, And I believe even in that moment, we'll say, oh man, I said it last week, I'll say it again, that Satan overplayed his hand on that day. He tried to take out one voice and instead multiplied her voice by exponentially. So, ah, what a day that will be, right? Um, boy, what a week it's been, huh? If, uh, if you're feeling especially spiritual, there are three seats up here under the spout <laughs> where the glory comes out, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> That always worked in the charismatic church I grew up in, right? We'd all be in the front row just in case God couldn't move in the third row. He's, you know what I'm saying? You, just, you, know, you needed to be up front where the, the Holy Ghost was. Uh. I don't know, man. This might throw off my whole thing. <laughs> Ron and Connie are over here and not there, and Jeremy and Jeremy. Like, the whole world is upside down. I want to read a letter to you this morning from uh, a young lady named Kirsten Kelly, who we've known since she was just a young, young teenager. And Kirsten was part of a youth group that Shannon and I were uh, privileged to be the youth pastor and youth pastress of um, for years. We, were, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know come here from Sikkim. We just loved Jesus. And, uh, and Donna's sitting here. Donna was a part of that fellowship. And what we had was a whole bunch of boys. We didn't have any money or anything, so we just we built like a little mini skate park out back. Uh, the kids would come, and we realized, hey, they were, uh, the kids would come, but then they would leave to go have a smoke break because they needed to smoke. And so, but they wouldn't come back, so we just built a little smoke pit. Like there was a little can back there, so they wouldn't leave. But there were a handful of young ladies that, for whatever reason, their father saw fit to entrust to this ragtag 
group. We were genuinely, uh, my friend Darren Whitehead is a pastor at Church of the City. He was the pastor, youth pastor of the People's Church. And what we would happen, genuinely, I'm not making this up, was uh, parents would bring their minivans and drop their daughters off at uh, People's Church and then bring their sons over to us. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was actually how I first met Amber and her sisters uh, that first night. And Jeremy was there. They walk out on the back, and I'm like, oh, girls, they, have, they obviously have no idea that they're, this is the, they, they didn't want to be here. Um, and it wasn't, it was just because they smelled so bad. When you get that many boys skating in one place, they just smell terrible. But this is Kirsten looking back at a time that I didn't even know was happening in her life, uh, a time when she was 17 years old, and she wrote this uh, to me, and I asked her if I could read it, and she gave permission and permission to use her name as well. She said, I remember sitting in the abortion clinic with my mom, and I felt totally numb, probably what I could closest relate to as survival mode. I was shut down, seeing plenty of other women in the room who were also in the business of making sure their life didn't change but not really thinking much of the little lives that were inside of all of us. In order to have an abortion or to support the right, and she puts in quotes, of abortion, the person has to be a sociopath to some degree. We have to turn whatever it is we are getting rid of into something other than what we are, which is human. Something that doesn't deserve empathy. It's not really a life yet. It doesn't have a heartbeat. Surely it doesn't have a heartbeat. God hasn't given it its soul yet. She said, in the big picture, all I wanted was to have someone, to know an unconditional and an everlasting love. It's what I wanted in the first place. It's the whole reason that I had an abortion was to hold on to the boy that told me he would, love, he would not love me if I kept it, in quotes again. I think there had to be, if there had been someone else, if there was a mother figure, a mentor, a leader in my life that was a strength for me, that promised that they would be there for me no matter what. That would have helped me change diapers and figure out breastfeeding and help me to find a job as a mom and a babysitter. If there was someone, anyone, that pushed me to keep the growing little life, I may have done it. I was right there. I wanted to keep. I just wanted to not feel alone anymore. She goes on to say, my parents were the only other people that knew at that time and they were going through their own marital chaos, so I think they just wanted to do whatever was easiest at that time. I really had no one to tell me, this is worth it. This is the best thing you will ever do, and I will walk through this with you. You can do this. I really believe this would have been enough to set me over the edge in the best way. She said, after the deed was done, I remember seeing it. I had a medical abortion, which basically induces a miscarriage and I remember thinking to myself, see, this is, it's just a bunch of tissue. There's no harm done. She says, but that's because the baby comes out in a sack, and so you don't actually see the tiny forming body. I didn't realize this at the time. I just thought it was simply tissue. But even with that, I still felt gross. Would you pray with me? Father, as we embark on this conversation as a church, as a society, pray that you would do what you do, which is bring clarity to confusion, bring certainty to uncertainty, to bring peace to unrest. And I ask for you to speak through me, in spite of me, and that your Holy Spirit would would do what you promised to be that comforter. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we have what's happened this week in our society, it's a little unnerving. I've been a little unnerved because on the one hand, on the, the national level, the public policy level, this deserves a conversation again. And so much of what you've seen in social media, God knows you haven't seen it on the national press because then they'd have to admit that they're complicit. But what you've seen unfolding in, that, in social media circles, thank God for that voice that we have, is stuff that you think, how is it possible 
that we could be here. And at the same time, we think, but how do I speak? How do I say? Because the, the statistics tell us this, that there's either between 25 and 40%, depending on the number that you would agree with, of people in America, of women in America, who have had an abortion. That means in this room, and in a moment, one of them, she's going to share a story. That means we're sitting right beside a person, maybe, who's been to this. And so when they see that, they feel and they relive and there's that guilt and the shame. And, and then the other side of that, but if, we, if we're silent, what do we do? How do we, we can't be silent either. What is the, the tension between the, the public policy and, and the personal experiences? And so as I thought about this this morning, I thought, well, I'll just be, uh, I'll just skip this one. The Lord, I just felt the Lord wouldn't let me because we have to talk about this. Since 1973, our, our nation made a decision, some judges made a decision that quite frankly they made when the technology wasn't like it is today. They made a decision when they were seeing things that they couldn't see back then. Today, we see today that they didn't see back then. And Eric Murtaxis, who is a great author who wrote a book, uh, biography on Bonhoeffer, which if you haven't read and you're, you still have time to knock out a 500-page book this summer, I, I couldn't put it down. I neglected my family. I'm like, this book is amazing. You know, I can't stop reading it. He also wrote a book on a missionary, a pastor named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce is famous because it was he in the UK and Britain that spoke up at a time when slavery and the horrors and were happening in his entire life was given to this cause. It was Wilberforce that said, you may choose to look away, but you can never say again that you didn't know. And as believers who have been on the internet in the past two weeks, you know, we all know. And what do we do about that? Murtaxis says that this might be the Wilberforce moment for our country. The moment where the tide has shifted, I, I believe him a little bit. I believe, I think maybe that's possible, that this, there's a moment that has shifted for us. And at the same time, on the public policy side, there's the question of, I mean, have you heard these arguments in favor of what they're doing? Have you heard what they're saying? That forceps and arms and legs are just a tissue donation and, it, and it's, it's, it's delusional. It's like a delusion that's required and as I thought about that, I want to make a couple comments about what I think on a public policy, maybe what's happening in the world and then we're going to shift back to the, the personal thing and what, the, what I think the Lord would want us to do. But as I thought about that, I, was think, I, I couldn't get past this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when Paul was speaking of a day that would come when the Lord would return and he would say that in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's speaking of a time when what we would call Antichrist. Or, it goes on in verse 10 to say, and with all the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Is that, is that it? Maybe is that what's happening in our world right now? Is the Lord... Is, is the tide shifting to a point where the Lord is going to return? And so some of these things that you hear somebody say, you think, like you almost want to shake them and say, are you kidding me? But there are moments in history where the Lord has sent delusions. I think of Pharaoh in Egypt. And every, I'm going to let him go. And then it's, it talks about the Lord blinded him. And if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, interestingly enough, 20 times in the book of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh was blinded. 10 times it says that God blinded him. 10 times it says that he blinded himself. So did God blind Pharaoh or did Pharaoh blind Pharaoh? Yes. <laughs> Thus concludes your lesson on Calvinism for today. <laughs> is God sending, is that it? I don't know. 
But the work of lawlessness, what I do know is that what we cannot do is what Jesus warned us would happen in Matthew 24, 12, when he said, and because of the lawlessness that will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We can't be there. And I wonder if what's happening right now is our love is being ignited right now. A love that maybe has gone cold because since 1973, did we feel like we could do anything? Deidre said, I want to do something, but we, all want, we don't know what to do. And so I wonder if that's what Jesus was suggesting here, was that the love of many will grow cold, is that in the same way that the train cars would go past a church in Nazi, in Nazi Germany, and they would, the people would be crying out, and they would just sing louder, so they didn't have to hear it. May we not sing louder, may our love not grow cold in this world. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, if you think back to the time when God was sent a deliverer to Egypt, what, what happened? The enemy began to kill all the children under two, all the males born that were under a certain age. When Jesus was coming on the scene, what happened? Herod began to kill all of the children under the age of two, or the, at the age that Jesus was at. Jesus when a deliverer would come, the enemy would always rise up and one of the things that would happen were children being killed. And I just wonder, maybe, does it mean, is this the enemy, one of his last throws of revenge against the God that he hates by killing children? Maybe our deliverer is on the way. Maybe. I take a lot of hope in that, a lot of solace in that. But in the meantime, what do we do? We're still here and he's not here yet and he talks about to occupy until he comes. In a a parable, to to occupy, to be about our father's business. And at the the public level, this isn't a, I don't believe this to be a political issue at all. I believe it to be a human rights issue. I believe it's us. As a church, we've spoken for the voices of those who have no voice all around the world. There are children that we are feeding and clothing and educating and giving hope that didn't have any hope, who didn't have a voice. We're giving them a voice around the world. This is our Wilberforce moment in our own backyard to begin to give a voice. And maybe it's helpful to think about on the, on the personal level, we have to start on the macro level to say that a society, a culture is really just a collection of personal experiences coming together in, in concert together. And we look at it on this grand level and say, how do we get to where we are here on this local level? And I know that we're not the first culture, the first kingdom to ask this question because David was asking it in the book of Psalms in chapter 106, in verse 37. He was speaking of Israel and this decline over the centuries and where they found themselves. And in verse 37, he says that they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. How did they get there? How did we go from where we were as a a people with just empathy and compassion? How did we go from there to 55 million just in America? How did Israel get there? They speak right now not of abortion, they speak of a God that was called Moloch. And Moloch was a God of the Moabites. And if you read, you can see in Judges 24, you can see Solomon speak of Moloch, Solomon who took wives from all these other countries and they they would bring their idols and their worship. But the God of the Moabites, the God Moloch, they would create this giant bronze statue, metal statue, and they would heat it. And I'm sorry that this is graphic. They would heat it to red hot. And, and in exchange for the, quote, prosperity that Moloch would bring for them, there were babies that were chosen and thrown into this fiery arms of this God, and it would be by the hundreds, and it's unimaginable. How did they get there? And it's super easy to sit and judge them and say, oh, that's crazy talk, until you think that, well, that's kind of what's happened here. The only difference is inside or outside of mama. How did they get there? To figure that out, 
We have to go beyond the deserts of Egypt and back to the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you've got your Bibles, I'd love it if you'd go to the book of Genesis with me. If you're new to the Bible, you might not know this story, but God, it says that the, the city, the wickedness of Sodom was so great that it reached the nostrils of God. And he said that I'm going to destroy this city. It says in verse 20 of chapter 18, And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, that their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So he goes down, and you might remember the story. He encounters Abraham, and Abram at that time, and begins to tell him, if you can't find any righteous people in the city, I'm just going to destroy it. And Abraham begins the first negotiation in Jewish history, right? <laughs> He's Jewing them down. He's going, I'm going to negotiate this one. So he gets them all the way down. Can you find 10 righteous people? Then I won't destroy this city. And of course, they didn't find even that. And so he goes to take his cousin Lot out of the city. And Lot, who has already been saved by Abram once, is being saved yet again. And Lot, when he's talking to the angels that have come to negotiate with them and to say, look, okay, I appreciate this, God. Thank you for throwing me out and saving me here. But, but while I got you here, God, what if, in verse 7 of chapter uh, 19, he says, I beg you, brothers, uh, do not act so wickedly. Be, behold, uh, oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Go back to the one where he's negotiating. He's negotiating with him. He says, I would send me not to here, but send me to Zoar. And God says, okay, I'll give you a little bit of a, a, piece of, uh, a piece of land out there. You can make it out safety. Lot doesn't even make it out of there. He actually makes it into a cave where he wants to die, I believe. Because why didn't he go back to Abram? Why didn't he go to a place where he could have been safe? But instead, he finds himself in this cave with just he and his daughters. He's lost his wife. And I wonder if why he's there, why he's so sad. Maybe this moment, this is what I wanted to read to you a minute ago, is that when these men originally came to the city, these angels, these uh, men of God, these angels came. The men of the city wanted to take these angels in and to have relations with them. And what does Lot do? He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. And he goes on to say, just don't do anything to them. And, and I'm reading that. I've got daughters. And I'm thinking... What? And you're thinking, Darren, what does it have to do anything with what we just talked about hundreds of years later when the psalmist would look back? Here's what it has to do is that they get to this cave now. They've escaped the city. God destroys it. These two daughters who just, you know, not that long ago, he's saying, look, you can have them. They're all alone. Mama is gone. She's turned into a pillar of salt, and it's just Lot and his two daughters. And it says... In verse 34, they've lost, keeping in mind they've lost everything they've known, everything they loved. Keeping in mind this was a guy that at one point had so much that they had to split up from Abram so they would have enough to, for their, their sheep and their, their herds. And now he has so little that he's in a cave alone at the bottom of the food chain. And the next day the firstborn, speaking of his oldest daughter, said, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight again also. Speaking of, they've already... They've gotten him drunk, and she knew him in the biblical sense. Let him drink wine also that you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son, and called his name Moab. The Moabites. 
He is the father of the Moabites to this day, and the younger one also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The people reading this would have immediately realized that's like saying this gave birth to this culture and this culture that hate the United States. It would have been like a wah moment for them. But let it be a wah moment for us as well. Because what happened in Israel didn't start that day. They didn't wake up one morning and say, let's begin to sacrifice our children. In America, we didn't wake up one morning. This, there was a journey, there was a slide, and if you read Romans 1, you can see how that happens in a culture. But in the same way, it didn't happen to Lot in one day either. It didn't happen to his daughters in one day either. I think to understand the genesis of this, the genesis that results, whether on a macro or on a micro level, it starts not in Genesis 18, 19, or Psalm 106, but in Genesis chapter 13, when it says that Abram and Lot had many, they were blessed and they were prosperous and they had all this, so much that the, the land couldn't contain them, and so we need to split up and go two separate ways. And it says that Abram said, look, you pick which way you want to go and go that way and I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot, it says in chapter 13, that I will go to the left, he's saying. Uh, Verse 10. My post-it note was covering my number. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, and this is a key, I think, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. What Lot wanted that day was not an illegitimate desire. He wanted what the words of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Don't nod because you'll know that you're old if you know what I'm talking about, but we got to get back to the garden. That what Lot wanted was to get back to the garden, but the problem is that the garden of Egypt and the garden of Eden can be a little, they look the same. One is an immediate, the other is a long-term. One is the way that it was supposed to be and will be a one, and the other is, a, is, is, is an imposter. And what Kirsten wrote that day was that what she really wanted was an unconditional love. Someone that would say it was going to be okay. And I'm reading it thinking, that's Jesus. I know that guy. That's, he's the guy, the unconditional love, the grace, the forgiveness. And before we ever go to macro, we got to start micro and say that all she needed was somebody to be Jesus to her. And for us, on a ground level, on the micro level, might we, before we ever go and protest, before we ever grab the bullhorn or whatever, whatever the Lord calls us to do, I don't know. But before we ever do any of that on the, on the ground level to those around us, can we give them the love that Jesus promises us? There's a TED Talk that's been floating around that I've just been absolutely fascinated by. And he's, he's this guy talking about maybe we're getting addiction wrong. Because what he was saying was that at the core of addiction is really a need for unconditional love. And we do the opposite. And I understand there's nuances to this and boundaries and all that. But what he, this guy isn't a Christian at all. He's like preaching Jesus and he doesn't even know it. And on the ground level, on the micro level, maybe we can be that to each other. To say to a young lady to a young man, a young man maybe sitting in this room who participated and maybe your pain is different, maybe you're hurt, but you have the same regret to say that Jesus took care of you, your sin and my sin exactly the same. And that even in those mistakes, and if your mistake was abortion and you can't undo it, can I tell you some good news this morning? You see, Moloch came out of Moab, but you know who else came out of Moab? Moabites was a young lady named Ruth. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Ruth. Ruth, 
who would be one of the greatest pictures of grace and the, the forgiveness and the power of redemption in the kinsman redeemer. Ruth, who would give birth to a son named Jesse, who would give birth to a son named David, who was in the bloodline of Christ. Jesus' blood was in Moab the whole time. And Jesus' blood is on you right now, washing you clean. Kirsten would, um, she would go on to write that from the time I was 17 until I was 22, I thought about it almost every day. No, every day. I was carrying the guilt and the shame. She said, but why? It was just a tissue. I saw it myself. And this, she says, this is because, and you young people, old people, I want you to hear what she's about to say something that we could go home on right now. This is because just like sex, being pregnant does something to you spiritually. Whether you're aware enough to know it or not, it affects you on a very deep and a very spiritual level. When you go through an abortion, your spirit and your mind, your soul are all in conflict. To self-preserve, your mind is telling you it's fine. It's not a person. And your spirit is screaming out for healing because it knows what you just did and went through. And most people who go through this are not self-aware enough to know what is going on until much later after healing, if, if ever. But she said, this is where I started experience, experiencing healing. Listen, I aligned my mind with what my spirit already knew, that it was a baby, that it was a life, not just tissue. And I acknowledged that, what they, uh, that they had a soul and a spirit and a calling over their life. She said, I had to process what I actually did, not just what my mind told me I did and then receive forgiveness from the Lord. This is where I found my true healing. I think that maybe one of the more important factors in finding healing to allow yourself to feel the severity of what you did, to acknowledge the choice that you made, how it affects more than just you, and to allow empathy to wash over you instead of fighting it like it's an enemy because that will destroy you. Because it's in the fighting, in the battle between your mind and your spirit, that is what will kill you. She said, I believe this was a huge factor in my healing. The more you hide it, the darker it becomes. And she talks about embracing God's forgiveness towards her. And no matter what other people said about it or her, I had to hold on to what I knew to be true, that I was forgiven and healed. Jesus was in Abram. We are seeds of Abram. Jesus also was in Moab because he's that infinite, he's that good, he's that kind. And I want to introduce you for those of you that are visiting, maybe you don't know Lynn, but those who've been around a while, you know Lynn and some of you don't know her story. But I've invited Lynn to come and share a story that she shared shared with me a couple years ago maybe now. But Lynn's courage has inspired me, and I hope it will inspire you as well. Yeah. 37 years ago, I found myself unwed and pregnant. Although it was what I wanted, marriage was not an option for me. The father wasn't ready. I barely considered adoption or even single parenthood. At that time, those things weren't nearly as common as they are now. I lived in a small town. I knew what people would say about me and think about me, and, and it scared me to know that I would be the object of ridicule. And I was hurt that the father didn't want to marry me. I was also terrified that if I struck out on my own and decided to carry my baby, that my parents wouldn't support me and then I would be truly, completely alone. Being a parent now, I know that that was not very likely to happen. I don't believe my parents would have done that, but I didn't understand that now, and I never gave them a chance. The father suggested I have an abortion. Abortion was legal at that time, but I really didn't know very much about abortion. I grew up in church, but I honestly don't remember it ever being mentioned in church or in my home. 
Something inside me said no. And so I stalled, but I knew I really couldn't stall for long. I had to make a decision soon. And I don't remember anyone ever telling me it's just a blob of tissue. I know women, though, who have been counseled in that way. But I justified it in a different way. I said, it's legal. I said, we're a nation under God. Our rulers are older and wiser than I am. And they know what God says and what God would allow. And they would never make a law that says that I can have an abortion if it's wrong. I remember bits and pieces from that day. Um, the memories that I do have are very vivid. I remember being dropped off by the father at the clinic while he went to a record store. I remember sitting in the waiting room listening to another young woman scream and cry that she didn't want to kill her baby. I remember watching the IV and the needle in my arm that pumped the drugs into my body. I remember looking up at the doctor at the end of the table and hearing him say, I don't understand how you girls get yourselves in this situation. But the thing I remember the most was the stillness and the emptiness that I felt when it was over, the way you feel when you're in the room with someone who's just died. If I hadn't understood it before, I knew it in that moment. It was wrong. After that weekend, the boy and I never spoke of it again. I'd only told one other person she'd moved away. One night I was with my best friend and we were drinking. I did that a lot then. And I told her what I'd done. And I asked her, I said, do you think God has my baby? And she assured me that he did. And I knew that he did. And at that moment, I confessed to him what I had done, and I told him how sorry I was. And in God's grace and his mercy, he gave me peace. And although, as the writer of the letter said, a day never went by that I didn't think about the abortion, it didn't consume my thoughts as it had in the past, and I continued to live my life. But I never told another person until Tony and I began to get serious in our relationship, and I told him. But he and I didn't discuss it for a lot of years. About 20 years ago, I started participating in an adult uh, Sunday school class at our church. I'd never been in an adult Sunday school class, and I also joined a women's Bible study. And God began to reveal to me that my beliefs about a lot of things were not grounded in his word at all. Um, the more I studied his word, the more I wanted to study. The more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. I looked up word definitions. I dug into his words, and I loved it. About six years ago, my Bible study leader, who is here this morning, needed to step down from leading our class and asked me if I would co-lead the class with another woman in our group. And after praying about it, I told her that I would do that. All of a sudden, thoughts of the abortion began to come back constantly. I would wake up in the night thinking about the abortion. I thought about it when I was mowing the lawn. I thought about it in the grocery store. I thought about it driving down the road. And I would consciously try to not think about it. And the thoughts would go away for a while, but they would always come back. And I knew that either one of two things was happening to me. Either God was trying to tell me something, or Satan was trying to make me feel that I wasn't worthy to lead this, this Bible study. It would have been easy if it had been Satan, because I know that none of us is truly worthy. It's only the blood of Christ that makes us worthy. But after two years of this, I finally accepted that it was God and that he was wanting me to share my story. So I said, I don't want to. <laughs> story of my life. Yeah. Well, I was now a part of the Christian community. I was a Bible study leader. I was in church. Abortion to Christians is a biggie, and it should be. But I'd heard women in my Bible study class refer to baby killers. I was a baby killer. I knew I was forgiven. My sin was paid for when I accepted the sacrifice 
that Jesus made for me on the cross. To believe I could do anything that his blood didn't cover meant that I saw my sin as greater than his sacrifice. God's word says that when we confess our sins, and by that I mean we agree with God that what we've done is wrong. When we confess our sins, he forgives us and he cleanses us. And not only that, but he forgets our sins. I mean, can you imagine not just forgiving, but forgetting the awful things that people have done to you? And after all, David said, all of our sin is against God. But people aren't like God. It's easy, it's hard for people to forgive, and it's almost impossible for people to forget. So I made a deal with God. I said, if you will show me with con in concrete ways that I can't misunderstand that this is what you want me to do, then I will share my story. And like Darren has said, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> because over the next few months, several things happened, and I won't go into all of them, but a lot of things happened that made me realize that that was exactly what he wanted me to do. I kept a painful secret for a long time. I told Tony what I felt like the Lord was leading me to do, and he encouraged me, and he and I met together with Darren, who has always supported me. As I began to share my experience with others, first with our daughters and then with close friends, I began to experience what James meant when he said, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Confession helped my healing process. I wasn't hiding anything anymore. It also gave my friends an opportunity to accept me as I was, and I knew they accepted me. Not that they approved of what I had done, but they accepted me and they loved me in spite of what I had done. It gave a face to the unknown baby killer that they often talked about, and some have even shared my story with other women who've had abortions. My healing continues. One of the consequences of my sin is knowing that I participated in supporting the abortion industry. We can slam Planned Parenthood all day long, and they deserve it, but businesses without customers don't stay in business. The videos have been gruesome and convicting, and we're not even halfway through. So why am I telling you this? Darren said to me once that abortion is an isolating but not an isolated experience. And he's right. The statistics I saw, I, that I saw show that 30% of women will have an abortion before the age of 45 in our country. And that also means that 35% of the men, although some men are not aware, many of these women will have more than one abortion. If you've had an abortion, I don't want you to feel isolated. I want you to be set free. I want you to experience forgiveness, peace, and healing, and you can only get that from God. I'm not saying you have to confess it to the world. That may not be what God has for you. That's between you and him. But I believe that one of the greatest deterrents to abortion should be the voices of women who have suffered from having them unashamed and unafraid. Romans 6, 21 and 22 says, What benefit then did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. If you've participated in an abortion in any way, as the mother, the father, as a parent who pressured a daughter, as someone who paid for an abortion, or even someone who drove someone to an abortion clinic, I'm reaching out to you. I want to pray for you, just where you're sitting. Lord God, you are our creator and our designer. You are the giver of life. I confess before you and all these people that I asked and paid someone to take the life of my baby because it wasn't convenient or comfortable for me to have a child at that time.
I ask you to forgive my selfishness and my pride. If there are others in this room, Lord, who are suffering because they've also participated in abortions and they've not laid that at your feet, I ask, Lord, that you would draw them to you right now and that they would not be able to resist your pull and that they would confess to you what they've done and that you would begin to heal their wounds. Please forgive us and our nation, Lord, for thinking that we know more about the way we should live than you do and for ignoring you and your commands. Help us to remember that you created us in your image and that human life is the most precious in your sight above every other life form. And forgive us for disregarding what you consider to be precious. Open our eyes to truth so that we would not be deceived by the lies of Satan, that we would not listen to him when he says, your happiness is more important, your comfort is more important, your convenience is more important. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers all our sin, and thank you that he came to set us free as captives. Help us to claim that freedom and to refuse to be under a yoke of slavery to pride, fear, or shame. I am nothing without you, Jesus. And Lord, you are my shield and my glory and the lifter of my head. And I ask you to remind me and to remind all of us that you have commanded us, Lord, to be strong and courageous, to not tremble, to not be dismayed, because you are with us everywhere we go. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you give Lynn a hand for her? Why don't you remain standing as our worshipers come back? And I want to actually think this through with me. At the core of all of our sin is the opposite of the gospel, which is no different than abortion. Abortion says, this is my body, my choice. The gospel said, this is my body broken for you. And we were going to uh, we do a little open mic prayer time, but I just really feel like Maybe this is time for you to do some business with the Lord this morning. I know that there's food and we're hungry, but I don't want to miss the moment for you and for I both to say that, to look at the land of Sodom and the, the Jordan and say, wow, that, it's just like the garden, that legitimate need in your heart to be filled in an illegitimate way, it always ends up with a Moabite. And today I would ask you to, where's, you're looking at the, the planes of your life and say, what am I trying to fill that only Jesus was ever promised to fill for us? And as we're worshiping and praying through that and the, the, the communion will be available on either side, maybe go to a corner and get on your knees. You can come all over. I don't care. And just right where you're sitting. But don't miss the moment in your own life to say that. What, what am I filling with, with this illegitimate thing in my life? And for those of you men or women, if you've had an abortion and you've been isolated and you want, you want to break free of that and to talk about it, I know Lynn is available and maybe Lynn will be just right here. You know where to find her. She'll be right here. I'm sure she'd be glad to pray with you or you can come find her afterwards. Meet and greet will give you a great opportunity if you want to do it in secret to, to just say, hey, can I talk to you at some point? But please don't miss the moment or the opportunity the story that Kirsten told, the Lynn told both, is all about speaking and bringing light and to do away with the isolation of this isolated, non-isolated incident. Father, we're so grateful that even though we live in a country that's delusional, that you are clear. In a world that seems so uncertain, you're certain that your lamp your light, your word guides us and thank you for that. This is something we're so grateful for. And my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would continue the prayer I've prayed all morning, would comfort us, would guide us. 
here and ask for an open mic. I want to share a, just a word of thanks for Lynn for saying that, but it reminded me of something. Today, uh, Michelle and I celebrate 18 years of being married today, and that's not been easy because she's hard at times. And I mean, seriously, uh, but hearing your story of, of pain, you said something on the front end of that. I saw it as a pastor for so long. Michelle and I not only married 18 years ago today, we, we were both virgins when we married 18 years ago today. And the that was incredibly hard for, for, for me and, and for her too, the longer you go. But what you said, I, I told Darren, I said, I, I want to share to every teenager in this room, boy or girl, number one, Michelle and I are living proof you can make it to your wedding day as virgins. Now, a lot of you didn't. So you can regain, you can't regain your virginity, but you can regain your purity. But I want to say something about the sex issue because before the abortion came an idea. And I see it all the time, and I saw it, and I've seen it my whole life in ministry, and it's this. I used to tell it to college students when I was pastoring at Belmont. We had full of college students. And I said, you're having sex with the thought that you're going to get intimacy. And sex will not lead to intimacy. What I've learned in 18 years of marriage is that you get intimacy through mileage. The victories and the successes and the failures and the, all the good things, that's what... Because I can promise you, sex at, eight, at 18 years, I was on a flight not long ago with this girl that confessed her whole life to me, didn't have, had a stranger. I said, are you having sex with your boyfriend? She said, yeah. I said, well, I can promise you you're not having the kind of sex I'm having. I said, because you're not married and you're hoping that that was going to lead you to a place of fulfillment. And guess what? You're crying on a plane because it's not so my, my prayer for all of you that are young is just to realize that every, and this is the same for boys, not just for girls. When that person wants to take that from you, they are a thief. And that is not theirs to take. And it puts you in places where you stand before people bravely and share stories. So my prayer, I want to pray for, I want to pray for all of our people that aren't wed right now. Uh, boys and girls alike. So Lord, my prayer is this. For every little girl in this room, every young girl, every teenage girl that is having conversations in the car with her boyfriend that her mom and dad don't know anything about. And she's trying to decide should she go that route. Supernaturally, God, protect that girl protect that boy God for every boy that's walking down the road to being a man and he's caught between a boy and a man and, and I know how that feels and the, 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 the sheer agony and, the, and the, the confusion over wanting to have sex oh Lord God I pray that they would absolutely taste and see that the Lord is good to be humble, as it says in 1 Peter, and in due time, God will lift you up. God, I pray for every teenager in this room that's already lost that battle. Lord God, that you would let them desire righteousness and purity more than any other thing. Protect them, Lord God. And, and for that matter, God, I'm praying for moms and dads that can be shining examples of Jesus in the home. For we, we, God, we are in a culture now that we're not just sexually confused, we're, we're sexually moronic. And, and, and living out what it means to be in a depraved mind and a mind that's been handed over. And all of our young people are having to navigate this territory, God, and it scares me so much. But I do know this, you're not scared by it. You saw it, you warned us, so I'm praying for your anointing. Father, from just the littlest ones in the nursery, Father, to 
the biggest ones that are in here. And Father, I just pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would instill wisdom and truth and Holy Spirit-driven power and leadership in our lives as we raise these young men and women to be after you, Lord. Father, I just pray for hearts of purity and hearts to want to know you and follow you and serve you. And Lord, it's just the, the folks who have brought this truth to light, this uh, with unplanned, with Planned Parenthood, Lord, are young. And Father, we just see that there's so much potential, God. We just see there's so much um, possibility for change in this world, Lord. And Father, for all the negative things that we see and encounter every week, Lord, we know that you are good, God, and that you have a plan for each one of these precious lives. And Father, we just ask that you would um, help just to shape and to form us as parents to be godly and to be great examples for these beautiful children, Lord, that you've um, given us. And for those who are longing for those children today, Father, would you give them just a, a peace in their heart knowing that you're the goal, Lord the goal to be like you is the goal lord and if we wait on you then everything falls into place exactly as you have planned jesus so lord just bless the parents today bless the children lord that we would be after your heart lord be the thing that we search for father I've not appreciated that in young women who make that hard, tough choice to preserve the lives of their babies. And I, I just pray for all of us here, Lord, that when we when we see that situation, that we would not rush to judgment and not condemn her for what she's done, but that we would we would honor her 
for not continuing down that same path that she would that we would help her and that we would hold her and we would treasure her and that we would treasure the life of her baby Lord. Lord, would you help us to be the one, the one that crosses the road, the one that reaches out, the one that opens our eyes to those that are hurting, to those that need us, and to stop being blind. Would you give us the courage and the strength to stop walking around our white picket fences to lay it down and get dirty. Let our hands, let our knees get dirty so that we can lift one, even if it's just one up, so that they would turn to you. Thank you, Father, for that love that is waiting to just bless someone else. Thank you, Jesus. I know it's hard not to know what to do on a sensitive subject like this. But at my job, the past few years, I've had the opportunity to talk and speak with hundreds and hundreds of pregnancy resource centers across the country. And these are mostly women, but men too, that are doing a remarkable job on the front lines. And thousands and thousands of babies are being saved. I've even had PRC managers tell me that abortion clinics have closed in their area because of what God is doing through these people. So if there's something that we, what we need to do and can do, we can at least pray for these men and women who are on the front lines that are interacting with these young women who find themselves in this situation. And if you feel led, you can obviously help the PRCs. They need, they need resources, they need diapers and formula and, and things, because when these women choose to keep the life that God has blessed them with, they don't always have the resources to take care of them. So it's just something that I've been able to be part of and help a lot of pregnancy resource centers at least shared, spread the word a little bit. Thanks. Lord, we do lift up those that are on the front lines. That Lynn has taken her story and is now on the front lines helping other young ladies that were in the shoes that she's in. And I know in this room there are others as well, not just here but around the world. And Lord, would you wake up more of us that the, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, maybe. Maybe today what you're doing is waking us up to be laborers on the front lines of these children. And today as a church collectively, Lord, we just repent. We change our mind of the apathy. We change our mind from not really noticing and changing our mind now towards you, Jesus, knowing that you are the author and the finisher of our faith, that you are the solution, not legislation, but the gospel. Our identity in you is, is the solution. And might we be good image bearers of you so that the, the Kirstens and Lynns of the world would know and feel loved and accepted. Not because of what they do or have done, but because of who you are and what you've done.